If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. If you're new here, and especially if you've just embarked on your sustainability journey, I really recommend starting from some of our earlier content, because oftentimes in later episodes, we pick up on and dive deeper into things that we initially introduced in earlier ones. And if you want my guidance in getting started, you can sign up to our Embark newsletter to get our most popular episodes across a wide range of topics recommended to you. You can find that at greendreamer.com slash embark. This is a primarily listener-powered show, and we are calling in more listener support in reciprocity for what we put out so that we can meet our Patreon goal and continue this independent media platform. So if you haven't yet, we would love for you to join our Patreon starting at a tip of $2, like one cup of tea, at patreon.com slash green dreamer. And if you've already supported us and share the show with loved ones who you think would also enjoy it, we appreciate you so so much thank you we've developed words to describe ourselves as human beings and we haven't applied these words like intelligence and sentience to ecosystems those are the purview of human beings and we don't have words to describe properly what I'm finding about these neural networks and forests and the communication between trees. What other words are we going to use? And so I want to argue that in the ancient languages, in the Aboriginal languages of North America, for example, who have long known for millennia about connection. In fact, the whole worldview of Aboriginal people is that we are part of nature and we're all connected together. That those old ancient languages had the words for what I'm trying to describe. Today, we welcome to Green Dreamer podcast, Dr. Suzanne Simard, who was born in the Monashi Mountains of British Columbia and educated at the University of British Columbia and Oregon State University. She's professor of forest ecology in the University of British Columbia's Faculty of Forestry, and her research has demonstrated that complex symbiotic networks in our forests mimic our own neural and social networks. She has 30 years of experience studying the forests of Canada and is the author of Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. Suzanne, we're so honored to have you. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. 
Of course. So you've been in intimate relationship with and studying Canadian forests for over three decades. I'm curious, what was your background and the spark of curiosity that led you down this path? Well, I grew up in the woods of Canada, more specifically in the interior rainforests of British Columbia. And these are these are incredible forests. They're really diverse, very productive. They're where the big cedars grow, big hemlocks, birches. They're they're just everything is big there. And as a kid, you know, of course, it just was my home. And we had, of course, so much fun. We lived part of our summers on a, a lake called Mabel Lake, which is where my grandparents lived. And we lived on a a logger's houseboat. And my grandfather and his brothers and his dad as well, and my my dad too, they were loggers, they were horse loggers. And, And so that's how I grew up in that environment. And of course, the horse logging was just normal, you know, normal practices to me. And it was dangerous work. It was exciting work. Um, it was all-consuming, but it was fun too. So that's that's what I grew up knowing. And and the forests were very resilient to that kind of logging. And and so I I grew up knowing the forest was a resilient place and a place with great complexity and and diversity and and, and just full of life. And and so that's what I I grew up like in my in my DNA in my bones and my blood. That's who I was, that's where I came from. So in the sustainability space, a lot of people speak about forests as incredible carbon sinks, though that framing is based around their functions for humanity and for the climate crisis that our dominant system has caused. So what perspective shifts did you make and hope to inspire in other people in regards to how we view trees and forests as complex beings and communities in their own right? Yeah, that's a that's a lot to think about in what you just said. And there's so much good stuff in there. So for for one, of course, as I've become a, a professional forester, and then a professor who researches these forests, who who I've spent my life studying the very forests I grew up in. And one of the things that we are looking at is, is carbon stocks in these forests, and biodiversity and finding that those two things are highly correlated. Uh, more diverse forests more in more productive climates are also the biggest carbon sinks. And in fact, our West Coast forests of North America are among the biggest carbon sinks in the world, rivaled only by, by the Amazon, for example. And one of our discoveries or, you know, or our studies show that when we clear-cut log, for example, that you pretty much lose half of the carbon right off the bat because the trees get converted into you know into different products some of them are very ephemeral like you know pulp or toilet paper or things that just basically disappear within a year into as CO2 into the atmosphere some are converted into long term storage products so following that chain is really really important but but mostly you know i think that the message i want to say is that these highly productive forests in these special places on the earth and these sort of carbon hotspots are incredibly important for not only conservation of carbon, but conservation of biodiversity. And even though carbon has become sort of like the language that we speak in nowadays, because we're dealing with climate change and worried about it and what to do about it. And we know that carbon and how much carbon we emit into the atmosphere is crucial or it underpins that. It is also a really good overarching 
property of ecosystems that is an umbrella for conservation of all other things as well. And I think that in some ways that's really fortunate that if we, if we can, we can focus a lot on carbon and conservation of carbon to mitigate climate change. And at the same time, it will help us conserve other crucial ecosystem functions like biodiversity or water quality and quantity and mitigating climate change, really. So it's it's not a bad thing to think about it. And I think that the more we study it, the more we realize how important it is to really try not to cut down these old forests, right? Especially in these really productive areas where the old growth forests are, they are huge, huge important storehouses for carbon and biodiversity. So in many ways, using carbon can be an incredible way to understand our forests and their resilience as incredible carbon sinks. And I also wonder if there might be other ways in which it's limiting to view our forests and the role of trees through the lens of carbon. So for example, as we talk about what we can do to address climate change, a lot of people who are more perhaps focused on techno fixes will give arguments that, you know, when you plant trees, it is not guaranteed that they're going to thrive and survive and grow to old age to sequester the carbon. So it might not be a viable and reliable long-term solution. So I wonder if there are also limitations to, I guess, taking this reductive approach of the lens of carbon to understand the complexity of you know what forests can really do. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. And so, you know, there's always a danger to looking at ecosystems or complex systems through one lens, right? So looking at one variable to represent all. And and I think what I'm saying is that we're fortunate in that carbon dioxide and emissions to the atmosphere are a huge concern and luckily for us you know if we can if we do need to focus on that a lot that it captures a lot of other ecosystem processes but it's not it's not perfect and let me explain so for example in the drier forests of of North America so not the coastal forests but across the mountains in in more of the central areas of our continent. These forests are not as productive, but it doesn't mean that we should be cutting those forests down as well. Because when you look at biodiversity of those forests, those are poor quality soils because they're they're glaciated soils, but they host a huge biodiversity. And so when I say biodiversity is correlated with carbon, I'm really specifically talking about tree biodiversity. But as you go northward, for example, the diversity of trees actually goes down. So if you move, for example, from tropical to temperate to boreal forests, the number of tree species in those forests declines. But the diversity doesn't decline. Instead, it get, kind of gets shifted into these understory layers. So the, the understory plants, the shrubs, the herbs, the mosses, and then even into the soil. As you go further northward, there's more and more species of mycorrhizal fungi, for example, which is what I study. And so simply looking at it in the lens of, of tree diversity does definitely does not capture the full biodiversity of forests. And all these other plants and fungi and bacteria in the soil all have crucial functions. So for example, in the understory forest, those plant species, the herbs and the shrubs are important browse species for wildlife, for example. They're homes for small mammals, for example. In the soils, you know, that diversity is important for carbon storage deep in the soil. So so we do need to take that, that broader look across the, the forest ecosystem. 
So that means that we have to be really judicious about how we manage these forests. And and so your other part of your question was about planting trees. And so as a solution for climate change and that it's not a perfect solution. And I'll just say one thing right off the bat in that, yes, like our old forests, our forests that are the primary forests that have, you know, have been going through their natural successional cycles. And those forests are naturally very resilient, that they reproduce very well under you know, normal climatic conditions, and that, and that they store this old, old carbon that's taken you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years to stabilize and store that carbon. And so what we need to do is leave those primary forests and those old growth forests as much as we can, not clear cut them, especially the great big productive forests, which for, from the logging industry perspective, those are the ones that they want to cut down because they bring a lots of profit. But they're also the ones that we want to keep from a carbon and biodiversity point of view. And so we really need to be valuing those forests more for their full suite of ecosystem services rather than just the simple products that the forest industry makes. As far as the tree planting goes, tree planting is not an excuse to cut down the old forests. We still, those forests, those existing intact forests, we should be focusing so much on trying to keep them there, uh, keep them in their, in their you know, normal dynamic status as they are now. Where we've deforested or where the forest is degraded, we need to, you know, we do need to replant those forests or augment their planting. That's a complex issue in itself in that, you know, ecosystems are highly, the species are highly evolved and co-evolved with all the creatures in those ecosystems. And if we just carelessly, you know, prescribe species that are not suited to those places or that aren't able to keep up with climate change in some way, or are not don't have the right companion plants, then those plantations can easily fail. And, and also it takes them decades, if not hundreds of years, to catch up to their original carbon status as as they were as an old growth forest. And so the planting itself, it, it's not an excuse to, to say, oh, we're going to plant, but we're going to cut down that forest first. That's that's like the really the wrong way to go about it. What mm-hmm. we should focus on is replanting the, the degraded, uh, depleted forest now and making sure that we we match the species with the land properly. Right. So there, there are lots of things to question. For example, in our current economic system, a dead tree is more often than not more valuable than one that is still standing. And as you say, old growth forests and the ex- existing forests that we have today are really irreplaceable because of all the complexity that they've really built over decades and centuries as well. I know you have some really fascinating stories in terms of how you came to the realization that trees are complex creatures and that they talk, which was and still can be controversial. So what research or finding gave you the confidence to make this statement? And why might there even be pushback against this narrative? Okay, so I'll address the the dead tree part first. So I, I think people need to keep in mind that forests are really dynamic places. And that means that there's constantly some trees are dying, some are seed is being shed and new trees are coming up and disturbance by fire or wind or other pathogens, insects, that's a normal part of forest ecosystems. And so there's naturally going to be this sort of turnover or, you know, death and then or mortality and natality going on all the time, birth and death. That's normal. 
And, and so even when we conserve an, an area like an old growth forest, some people will argue, well, it's going to just burn down eventually anyway, or those trees are going to die anyway. Or And so they're partially right that these are dynamic places, but it doesn't give us an excuse to go and clear cut them because what we need to do is plan for recruitment of old growth forests into the future and plan for the, the fact of the matter that, that there's going to be this dynamic turnover. And so we need to be really smart about this and we need to be attuned to the land, know what's going on so that we can respond to make sure that we're not losing forests, but we have plans in place for that there's recruitment of old forests into the future. Then with regard to the, the talking trees, what, what I study is, is how trees compete with each other, but also how they collaborate with each other. And the reason I got started on this is because as a young forester, what I discovered is that normal forestry practices are to focus so much on managing competition in forests that foresters are singularly, almost singularly focused on this and the practices that we've created around that. And this all comes from, you know, our long-seated understanding of evolution and natural selection, which is based on competition, to the expense of understanding the other many interactions and sophisticated ways that trees communicate in forests. They don't just compete, they collaborate as well. And so I was seeing in my practice as a forester that, that this focus on, you know, taking out plants that we didn't want because we viewed them as competitors, even other trees, like if we didn't want cedars, we would brush them out or, or even the little berry producing plants. And this reduced the diversity of our forests. It also introduced all kinds of avenues for insects and disease to get a hold of these forests and start attacking them. And, and so I started examining in my, in my doctoral studies and in my master's how trees interact in other ways. Do they also collaborate? And sure enough, I've found that, that trees and plants are in a constant communication through various avenues. And what I studied mostly were these mycorrhizal networks, which are below ground fungal webs where trees and plants will exchange resources like carbon and nitrogen and water as well as information like whether or not they were stressed out or being attacked by an insect, they communicate this information. Even whether they're related to each other, they communicate this information. And so, yeah, that, that really opened up our understanding that there is so much more going on in the forest than we understood simply from our parochial, narrow view of competition as supreme. And so, yeah, it brought a lot of controversy because, you know, the whole forestry practice, you know, what species we plant, how far apart they are, what plants we weed out of them, how we thin them is all predicated on this notion that, that trees only compete with each other or with other plants. And so, of course, you know, it meant a real shakeup of how we viewed forests, but also how we managed forests. And so, yes, there's been a lot of pushback. But at the same time, a lot of people, most people look at this research and say, this makes sense. I, mm -hmm. you know, I see this even when I'm in the forest that trees are in this sophisticated relationship with their, all their neighbors and the ecosystem. A spring remembers the taste of gin I let a light upon our skin Your form it lingers Trace just where you've been the songs we sing I'll sing again When it breaks down Baby, let's try To see the beauty in all the fading 
I've really resonated with this saying that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And this applies to a range of things, including nutrition, to wellness, to ecology. And this seems to be especially the case with our forests, in that the trees and the mycorrhizal networks and the root systems underground that connect them all, they have symbiotic and synergistic relationships with one another that really builds on their collective community resilience. I wonder if you can speak more to how the forest beings support one another, especially involving this underground network, and how their social systems might remind us of how we build our human communities as well. Yeah, you know, you said it so eloquently yourself. It's it's really, really, it's right. You described that very well. Let, let me give you an example of how this works. So yes, an ecosystem is a complex system. What that means is that all the different parts of the ecosystem, the trees, the plants, the, the bacteria, the fungi, the little spiders, the fish, the animals, they are all part of this beautiful system. And they're all interacting and have relationships with each other. And these relationships are complicated and sophisticated. And they've evolved over, you know, millennia. And when you start looking at complex systems like this, and you, if you were to dissect it into all of its reductive parts, you would never be able to put it all back together and make it a working ecosystem again, right? Like that reductionist view that, you know, you can take all the trees out, for example, and take all the forest floor away and take all the animals away and then put back trees, plant trees, and then hope that there's a forest in the end. Well, you, you've taken away so many parts that that, that forest really can't reconstruct itself very well, or it will take a long, long, long time. And so what emerges out of the, all those relationships is, is this beautiful ecosystem. And we call those, you know, that beauty an emergent property. So an emergent property of systems means that it's those higher level uh, functions and processes that you could never predict from just adding up the parts. So those are things like the productivity of the forest or, you know, that beautiful feeling you get when you walk in the forest, that mystery and spirituality, or even just other things like the ability for it to, to clean our air and provide us with this biosphere where humans can live. You know, we could never recreate that ourselves because we don't under, completely understand the system. And the system has a lot of these emergent properties. We need to honor that and respect that. And if we don't, then the systems will start to collapse. Um, if we start taking away too much, the system collapses itself. And we don't want that to happen. We can't afford for that to happen. We need fully functioning ecosystems so that they can continue to support life. You know, the life support systems that we rely on. And actually, we take for granted because we've evolved in these beautiful systems. We think that they're here for us. And yet they require care as well. They require us to carry out our responsibilities as members of these complex communities. And I met, I emphasize members. We're not dominions over these places. We're only members. We're equal partners to the trees and the wolves and the bears. And they're relying on us to carry out our obligations to them and the ecosystem as we are to our future generations. And so I think that in a lot of ways, we forget that obligation to the land and we really do need to get it back. In terms of really dismantling human supremacy and taking on a more biocentric viewpoint, I think there's a lot of narratives and our worldviews that we have to question. And in your book, Finding the Mother Tree, you say, if the mycorrhizal network is a facsimile of a neural network, the molecules moving among trees were like neurotransmitters. 
end quote. And I think this really alludes to the intelligence and wisdom of trees that we tend to overlook, although our measures of intelligence and sentience, for example, are often very anthropocentric and measured against the ways that humans experience and perceive the world. So I guess if our tools of, for example, brain scans can measure neurological activity, but not be able to show what a person is actually thinking or processing in our minds at that moment, I wonder what we don't know and can't see and may not ever know in regards to the processing and exchange of information and knowledge in the tree and forest network that is merely represented by the exchange in molecules that are very limited tools and ways of knowing are capable of detecting right now. Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, I, I love how you talk about if you take a brain scan that, you know, we can see the neurotransmitters or, or we can use isotopic tracers and see where like serotonin and glutamate and our major neurotransmitters are moving around in our brains as we have thoughts, but we never really can understand fully like what that chemical interaction, how does that arise to those thoughts, you know, or, or our ability to, to sing, for example, you know, these amazing behaviors that we have that we can never fully reconstruct by looking at brain scans. It's the same thing in forests. And, and essentially what we did in our research is we took like a brain scan of the forest floor, but we used molecular tools to do this instead of an MRI machine. We, we actually dissected the forest by taking all the fungal material, looking at the DNA, DNA sequences, especially little short sequences, and we were able to actually map what this network looked like. And, it, and it, ha it is the same pattern or a very similar pattern to a neural network, a biological neural network. And that means it has like different hubs and nodes and linkages. And even the compounds that are moving through the mycorrhizal networks in the forest are there, some of those compounds are exactly the same. We know that glutamate travels through the through the mycorrhizal network, for example. We know plants produce serotonin. Like we know these things that are so similar and conserved across species and whole kingdoms, you know. So yeah, and we, and we will never fully understand that in forests either. In fact, we're going to understand it probably less than we do in humans because we focus so much of our research and our dollars on ourselves, right? Because we we think we we are the most important things in the world. We don't nearly put as much money into understanding forests. And yet, you know, we've discovered these things and we'll never fully completely understand it. But that also means, you know, that's also a good guidepost for us that we, we shouldn't be pretending that we can do that or that we can reconstruct a forest by like taking away all the legacies from the past and then just trying to reconstruct it by planting a few species. We really should be taking the message that we need to keep all the parts. And that's what, that's what Aldo Leopold said. He said, you know, don't throw away the parts because no amount of tinkering is going to give you the ability to reconstruct that incredibly evolved suite of species that form that ecosystem together. Right. So if we aren't able to fully understand the complexity of these systems, then it's impossible for us to actually bring that back because we won't even know what we're missing by removing all of these elements and the pieces. And a lot of your work, whether intentionally or not, I think really invites greater empathy for trees and forests when we might see ourselves and our loved ones and relationships and networks reflected in their ways of being. 
Although in the scientific community, there's often a warning against anthropomorphizing more than human (laughs) beings out of concern that people can misinterpret the behaviors of, for example, creatures that we don't fully understand and may put them or ourselves in danger. So that is definitely an important concern. But Also, Western science in general has a tendency to encourage people to remove our emotions and feelings to maintain objectivity. And I do think that's valuable in many ways. But I also think that all life is based on relationships. All ecosystems are based on relationships. And the choices that we make are often guided by our emotions, which are shaped by how we relate to our kin and others and the world. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the value in or concern with our abilities to relate better to trees and forests, rather than dismissing them as inanimate and simple and without wisdom and intelligence of their own kind. Yeah, yeah. So this is, you've hit on a really key thing. And so when when we affect forests and manage forests with a very narrow perspective, and that narrow perspective is based on our scientific understanding of the time. So let's say, you know, over the last few hundred years, or well, since Darwin, really, and even before, but especially since Darwin came up with his natural selection theory, we've focused so much on competition, as I've said, and we've managed our forest based on the notion that this is the most important, if not the only thing, only interaction happening in forests. And when we we closed our minds to the, the possibility of other things could be going on, the consequence of that is that we have lost so many species. We all know that we're in this huge mass species extinction. Well, a large part of that is from land use change and deforestation, and then trying to grow back plantations. Well, we've lost a lot of species. And that's based on our own ignorance or our own very narrow understanding of how these ecosystems work. And also, as you said, because we've separated ourselves from nature that, and, and as scientists, you know, that is part of the cornerstone of Western science is to be separate, be the uh, dispassionate observer of these systems or, or even reducing it down and trying to understand the parts. And when we do that, when we take that reductionist approach to science, the consequences are huge, right? Like the consequences are that, you know, if we, focus so much on competition, we're losing, we're losing ecosystem function, we're losing, our climate is changing, our species are declining. There are huge consequences to this inadequate understanding of how the system works. And so part of that is is this Western science of the separation of man from nature, of holding ourselves as superior, the dominion over nature, and not and seeing ourselves as part of nature. And so as we when we separate ourselves and say oh we're superior or i'm the dispassionate observer you miss the opportunity to see how the system works and you misinterpret behaviors that way too what i'm trying to do is say look there's way more going on here than we saw in the past that that collaboration is as important as competition there's all this pushback against that and i'm trying to relate to everyday people to say look we need to change we're desperate to change because we don't have much time left we need to wake up to the fact that that these forests are complex places and our lives depend on it and i'm trying to get people to understand this and when i use terms like mother trees I get 90% of the people, right? I That's who needs to, they understand that, right? Because we all have mothers, we all have 
empathy for our mothers. We have families. And when we start to see the forest as a place where it's not that different, those are social places as well. And there are old trees that nurture their young and recognize their young, just like us as human beings. And so people, scientists will get their backs up that this is anthropomorphizing or even using words like communicating or intelligence or, you know, sentience is even more loaded. And those words, um, yes, yes, okay, so they are using human or the English language words to convey some of the new understanding of forests, but it's only to help us get there, to get to a better place. And I would argue that, you know, that we have misinterpreted by removing ourselves from the ecosystems, that we've created so much damage by doing that, that a little anthropomorphizing is going to do a lot more good than not putting ourselves back in. And let, I mean, I'm going to say something else in that the English language is quite limited, right? We've developed words to describe ourselves as human beings, and we haven't applied these words like intelligence and sentience to ecosystems. Those are the purview of human beings. And we don't have words to describe properly what I'm finding about these neural networks and forests and the communication between trees. What other words are we going to use? And so I want to argue that in the ancient languages, in the Aboriginal languages of North America, for example, who have long known for millennia about connection. In fact, the whole worldview of Aboriginal people is that we are part of nature and we're all connected together. That those old ancient languages had the words for what I'm trying to describe using these very simple human words. And so, you know, we've really, in the English language, in some ways, we're hamstrung by this. And we're hung up on this anthropomorphizing because we don't have other words for what I, these phenomena, these emergent phenomena that I'm describing and discovering. And so we need to then move beyond and find new words if we need to. But there is a, obviously, like as I've described, I, I truly believe that we need to put ourselves back into nature. We need to understand that we are not that different from the social lives of trees. Our social lives are so similar. In fact, the trees are our ancestors right they are the ones that we've evolved from those social creatures ourselves already and from the bacteria and the fungi that also have social lives and so you know we have a lot to learn from that and a lot to gain from seeing ourselves as connected to them mm, that's really powerful and as you say perhaps the english language itself reflects our dominant culture of human supremacy and disconnection or disassociation from nature. So it kind of reflects this dominant worldview that is embedded in the current system and the dominant culture as well. So there's a lot to unpack in terms of how our vocabulary and language are tied to our worldviews, which is, you know, influences how we relate to the world and consequently all the choices that we make as well. And as we embrace the complexity and wisdom of trees, these ancient beings, and the resilience of complex forest communities, how can we use all of this knowledge to really work to reinforce the ways that they already build resilience for our collective whole so that we can become regenerative in our impacts to address climate change, but also so that we can remember our roles as members of this greater community of life on Earth? I, I would just want to emphasize, you know, just to go back a little bit about this anthropomorphizing and then the, you know, the critiques of the work is that let's not, let's not lose sight of the big picture. And, and as you said, the big picture is that we want a healthy place for us to live, for the, our children to live in, for the next generations. We have an obligation to them as people, inhabitants of the current 
time. And uh, and so how do we do that? We need to do our best, right? If and and really our ancient cultures did that. Like we had these obligations and we fulfilled our responsibilities to each other and to the land. And and that is what we want to do. And what I'm trying to convey is like, what is a helpful way to do that? And that, that is to see yourself again as part of nature. And then once you do, then you can see your your own, what is your obligation to help that? And what is your responsibility? And how can you play a part in this? And we all have a role to play, you know, small and big and, and not always the same. But, you know, on a very practical way in forests, what it means for a forester, which is who I am, is to know your land and observe and watch and change as needed, adapt. So knowing the land means being observant and being there with it and um, and seeing the changes. And then if help is needed. So, for example, we know that as climate changes, the velocity of climate change is far faster than any plant or tree is capable of migrating. So, you know, historically, the paleoecologists can reconstruct how quickly, for example, trees move northward as climate warmed in different epochs or eras or as they cooled as they you know move south southward for example and when they reconstruct those pollen records they can actually say well they've moved at this rate which is really really slow and climate change is moving at 10 times that rate or, or even faster and so in that case right we want to make sure these ecosystems don't collapse as trees start to die because they can't adapt quickly enough to the changing climate to the warming temperatures for example or the new droughts or the new the new floods, then as people, we, we don't want these systems to collapse. We want them to be continue to function, to, to clean our air, to provide clean water, to store carbon. And so we want to, we need to help them. And to help them, things we can do are, are, are things like helping species migrate, for example. We can, we can take, you know, uh, we can take a species and move it a little bit further north and provide a good ecosystem for it to be migrated into and cared for. And so, yes, you know, we have a huge role in this. And we have, and if we want to continue to be on this planet and being a thriving species and healthy place for our children, um, then these are the, the things that we need to learn to do. We need to do them. We need to do them for our ecosystems and for ourselves. And as we're nearing the end of our discussion, I'd love for you to share the greatest lesson that you've personally learned from trees and working with forests, as well as your cause to action for our listeners. Okay, yeah. So what have I learned? Well, I think the thing that I've learned is that that our relationships are the most important thing about our, our lives, and they're also the most important thing about all the creatures' lives. It's out of our relationships that we have lovely lives, right? We have we can have fulfilling, rich, beautiful lives. And so looking after those relationships is paramount. You know, caring for your parents, caring for your children, your friends, ha- having a good social structure that looks after people, doesn't pit people against each other, that provides safety nets for all of us, that brings us all up and gives us all a healthy home because we all have these rights as do the squirrels, as do the trees, as do the grizzly bears. And what can people do today? There are so many things you can do, as I said, from small to big. But I would say as a forester, the first thing I would call out to people, in addition to decarbonizing your own energy consumption, that has to happen at huge levels, like 
global levels in our global community, as well as at small levels. But that's number one, is that we need to decarbonize our energy sector so that we can at least have a hopeful uh, ability to mitigate climate change. The second thing I would say, you know, that goes hand in hand with this is forests play a huge role in this. My area of specialty, that forests account for about a quarter of climate emissions. If we clear cut our forests, we're going to have, you know, we basically are going to lose our life support systems. And our old forests are a especially crucial in this. So they store huge amounts of carbon. They're the storehouses of our biodiversity. They are absolutely essential. And so if you can lobby your government or vote the right way or go um, write an op-ed or write a letter to your MLA or whatever you want to do and and say, we need to save these forests, that is absolutely crucial. And not just old growth forests, that goes for other ecosystems as well. Just because I'm a forester, that would go for, you know, old scrublands as well, or old deserts or the ocean or the Arctic. Conservation is super important at the same time as we, we decarbonize our future. The roads are endless, they seem to grow. Vines that wind around the world. And though I hate it to leave my home, I love that car when I need to go When it breaks down Baby, let's try See the beauty in all the fading What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? So I've been reading Yuval Harari's Sapiens, which is it's been out there for a couple of years now, but it puts it puts us in a, the human being into the perspective of the whole evolution of humans and the and the changes in the planet. And I think you realize where you 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 sit in in that whole realm of time and space that, that humans are, you know, the here and now is just such a small slice, right? That we have this big, long evolutionary history. And it's important for us to understand that so that we can know our role moving forward. So I highly recommend that book. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? Well, I think that the biggest motivating thing for me are are my daughters and um and my nieces and nephews and and their lives right and i see my place as just i'm a mother tree for them and i want them to have successful and happy lives i should say happiness is the most important thing and so then they will have children and have happy lives and and so they inspire me also like all young people. <laughs> I consider myself young too, even though, you know, I, of course I'm getting older, but, you know, it's our young minds. It's a youthfulness in us and our brilliance that gives me great hope. And I, when I work with my students, like they're so brilliant and they're so resourceful and so hopeful. And, and it's my, it's the least I can do to help them create a better world for themselves and for me to, to do my part, to use my own wisdom and knowledge to, to make, help make, make a better world for them. Mm. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? 
Well, I, you know, in my studies, of course, I, I was trained as a, as a reductionist scientist, and which has lots of limits. And as a scientist, you quickly see what those limits are. And then there's a whole new field of study called complexity science. And I shouldn't call it new, because I think that it's about the study of systems. And the reason I say it's not new is because for thousands of years, the first peoples of this earth understood the system as a complex system, where all the parts are interacting and creating this emergent, beautiful place. Um, but the thing about that kind of system understanding is that you know that through relationships that systems can, you know, they build and they have tipping points, they have big changes. Those changes can be positive and negative. And in the climate change parlance, people worry about big tipping points where suddenly the, you know, the ice, ice sheet is melting and a big glacier calves off or the Antarctica is losing a huge ice mass. And then the ocean currents are changing and that this sets up a bunch of feedback loops that, that can make climate change even worse very quickly. But the positive thing about complex systems is it doesn't have to be that way. It can go the other way too. And so that if we put in place good policies, slowly or even rapidly, suddenly, you know, those policies put in place now, in a few years, will have big dividends, there'll be big payoffs. So things like decarbonizing as quickly as possible, converting to electric cars, re relying on other energy sources like solar and wind, th those will have pos very positive and rapid feedbacks that will be really helpful, but we have to put them in place. We have to do the work and then we will see those kinds of very positive rapid changes. That gives me huge hope. Our systems are built to recover that way. You know, because they're complex systems, they have evolved to heal. And that gives me incredible hope. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Suzanne's work and book, Finding the Mother Tree, you can head to her website, mothertreeproject.org, and you can also follow her on Instagram and Twitter at drsuzannesimard. Suzanne, thank you so much for this deeply enriching conversation. It was an honor to have you here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Keep up the good fight. It all matters. You matter. And everything that we all do to convey our wisdom to our neighbors, to look after our fellow creatures, including the trees, our brothers and sisters, is all important. And uh, keep doing that. Do anything you can in a positive way to help make a better future for all of us. It all matters. This episode was brought to you by our community and listener patrons. To support this independent media platform starting at just $2, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. The song featured in this episode is called The Fading by Joan Shelley. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production management intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. I'm deeply grateful to have you and for your support. And I will catch you soon in the next episode.